Hi friends, on this episode I'm joined by Tonga Robertson, interior designer, owner and creative director of Nest Interiors. She operates out of Hamilton, New Zealand, has a pretty cool story to share about being an interior designer, being a mother, studying and her approach to her trade. It was a fun chat. I've wanted to talk to an interior designer for a while to try and see what they see and how they help put together a client's vision of what their interior space could look like. It was an interesting chat and I hope you enjoy it. Tonga. I had come across your profile on Instagram and realized that you're an interior designer and I've been wanting to speak to an interior designer for a while, get someone on the podcast. So I thought I'd chance my arm and you've been very gracious and accepted my invitation. So thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. No worries. So let's let's get into it. What, what do you do? Uh, let's talk about Nest. Let's talk about your background and how you got into the industry and how it all started. Yeah, so I am a interior designer by trade. Um, so I went and studied formally at Wintech and graduated um, with a diploma of interior design and kind of went on from there. Um, prior to going back and studying, um, I've had a, had a family and had three kids and I've done a whole bunch of other things. And during my time having my children, um, was really good time for me to think about what I wanted to do with myself. And I'd kind of went into teaching a little bit and that wasn't my jam. I realized there was too many boxes and I didn't like trying to fit or had, having to fit into those boxes. Um, and so got married, had my family. And basically when we had, I've got three children. And once we had child number two, I had a really ur big urge to, wanted to help people but I had a big creative pool and I was always creative for as long as I know and um, so that was a interesting thing because I had originally thought that I'd get into something like midwifery or nursing um, and then had baby number three and by then I knew that whatever I did I'd always have this creative urge and if I can mix being able to create and help people, then that would be the ideal outcome for me. Um, I had this cool dream of being an artist and wouldn't that be cool just to live in a studio, paint and create art. Um, but I didn't think I could make a living out of it. And so that's where I kind of went on a tangent and towards design um, because you work so closely with people and you deal with a vast amount of types of people. Um, and you still get that creative outlet. So, yeah, had baby number three, and my two youngest children were both under two, and they went to daycare full-time, and I went to uni full-time for two years, and that was hard slog. Um, yeah. Wow, yeah, that sure is hard slog. So, so you went to uni, got the diploma, is that right, or is this after? Yeah, so I um, graduated, and... Um, it was a pretty full-on two years having a family, running a family and a household and studying full-time. Um, came out of 
study and just about to graduate, started looking for work. Um, I had done some research and uh, I live in Hamilton and there was just so much construction work happening. And so I knew that there was plenty of work and I knew that there was um, market for what I was what I've been trained to do. Um, I had one interview and went to the interview and uh, pretty much it wasn't even for a design job. It was just to hang out in their showroom and, you know, talk to their customers. Um, but after the interview, the interviewer pretty much said that she didn't, she wasn't able to un see or understand how I would be able to work full time and, and have a young family. And that was a bit of a slap in the face <laughs> to me because I had just finished hustling two years of full-time study while having a family. Um, and in that time, in my last year of study, I had did a, um, I guess, an internship. And so I reached out to a local builder and he was building um, a new build, a 300 square meter new build. And so I was his apprentice or should I say, you know, I was, I needed to do some interning to clock up my hours to pass one of my papers. Um, so I tagged along and that was essentially my first new build. And that was, learned heaps of stuff there. And so... We wrapped up that job on my final year of study and um, there was potential leads for more work. And so, you know, when someone tells you, I don't think you could handle working full-time and having a family, hmm. you kind of want to turn around and prove them wrong. And so that's what, and so I, I, that's how Nest began. And I never, ever wanted to start a business off the bat, fresh out of graduating. But um, that's, that is where I've ended up. Um, and it's always been a dream of mine to have my own business at some point, but never straight, like not straight out of uni and being pretty green. Mm. Um, yeah. So I just kind of hustled and connected with some really good uh, colleagues in the industry and they were able to mentor me and to really kind of help me juggle business and getting into the design industry and just even basic stuff like contracts and scope of works and all of those sorts of things. And so I'm really grateful to um, a couple of people who, yeah, have really mentored me in those early couple of years. And so that's really helped me, um, helped me and helped set Nest up to where it is. We're still a fairly young business. We're only three years in. So, yeah. Yeah, man, that's a that's a good effort. That's a lot to take on. Like you say, it's not the usual path someone getting their diploma or their qualification and jumping straight into self-employment. So good on you for that. Yeah, and like I'm a big fan of learning and I would have loved to just go work for someone and learn. Like I, I wasn't even applying for designer roles. I was just like, I'll just come in as the bottom of the rail and I'll work my way up. But um, yeah, so I didn't get that opportunity. So just had to kind of make an opportunity for myself yeah great i love it so that so nest was born and so tell me a little bit more about nest and and what you guys do now um so at nest we offer a full scope of it's a full interior design service a majority of our clients come to us 90 percent of them come to us they don't have an architect they don't have a builder but they have ideas of what they want to create and they um, want us to design their spaces with them. And so we go on that process with them and we create some concepts with them. We start specifying spaces for them and then 
depending on the project, we'll engage, we'll encourage them to seek out a builder or seek out an architect if they need consent and things like that. Um, yeah, so we give we deliver a full kind of wrap wraparound service from right from conceptual design through to install construction handover. Awesome. So that's interesting because I mean maybe I'm wrong here, but uh, it's interesting that so many clients will come to you before they've even approached a builder or, or an architect, you know, they're really, I guess they're designing their house from inside out as opposed to the other way around, um, which I guess would be the most common way, perhaps not. So that's interesting. So, so people will come to you and they have a, an idea of what the inside of their house wants to look like. And then you'll kind of suggest ways of making spaces uh how can i put it you'll suggest basically like floor layouts of the house completely is that what you would do as well yeah yeah um what i'm learning from these clients is that they um majority of our work that we've done up to date is a lot of alterations and renovations and mm -hmm. um, we've done the odd i think maybe we've done maybe half a dozen new builds um, but majority of our work is in renovations and then some commercial fit outs um, but what I'm seeing with clients is that they have these frustrations of their existing spaces like they hate the acrylic shower box because they can never clean right around the corners um, and they like the idea or they have elderly parents who find it difficult to use their existing shower and so they talk about like how do we get rid of this lip and just make it's like a flush floor entry shower so it looks nicer and it's easier for all you know the appearance to use and it's those sorts of frustrations in their existing homes that mm. they come to us with and so um and then that's kind of that's the start of the process or start of the journey of working in and out and inside and working our way out mm. um we've had clients who in the past they would go straight to a builder um and the builder builds and doesn't necessarily execute the final look or the design or the aesthetic that the client was wanting to achieve. Um, and so maybe that's why clients are approaching us before they approach a builder. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. But yeah, it's just really interesting to see that that's the type of client we get at the moment. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if you, even if you know what kind of percentage of people who will undertake construction work whether it be renovations or new builds or whatever it may be uh, actually approach interior designers because i would say there's probably a lot of um people who hop on pinterest and have all these great ideas but it's quite hard to execute something like that or even visualize it when uh, someone like yourself has been trained to visualize what a space can look like uh, probably a lot more profoundly than people even living in those spaces so uh, yeah i guess what's the yeah what, what's the key for you to sort of unlock that it must be quite hard where people are coming across and kind of vaguely giving you ideas of of how they want a space to look it must be quite hard to transfer yeah. to a physical reality in front of them um I can see why you would see it as hard i guess um when we when a client engages with us I'm, I'm analyzing that client like in a psychological way. So they might say things, but their body language and their behavior doesn't actually uh, um, 
say that. So they might say that they like really bold features and really cool. They're, they're happy to do something bold in the ba- in the bedroom. And then you show them, you know, a really cool emerald green tile on the wall and they freak out. Yeah. And so they say things, but that's not necessarily what they actually want. Mm. And so my job as a designer is to really see past that and there's lots of psycho- psychology that goes behind it. And it's, I've, I'm learning that I have to get really good at reading people and reading the dynamics of relationships, especially with a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Um, the dynamics, if we're doing a commercial fit out of the business owners and the partners and the directors and understanding who gets this way and who gets the sign off and who's, who's going to let us spend that amount of money. And so there's lots of dynamics as a designer you're watching and you're analyzing and you're almost pre um, like we'll sit down with a client and we'll, we start showing them potential materials and all you need to do is watch their behavior mm. and their reaction. And they don't need to say yes or no. You can read that body language and understand. And so you would adjust accordingly. And so it's like playing magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's probably something that myself as a designer is able to do and it gives the client room to explore that. Whereas potentially where they are tradie, um, that might not be the case. Mm. Um, and, it, and I like to, um, I tell clients like you can't expect a uh, chippy to be a designer and you can't expect me as your designer to build for like build what I design for you. Mm. And I'll never ever build anything that I design. Well, not yet. Mm. Um, and so I always, we always encourage our clients to put together a really good team. It might be an architect, a builder, a landscape architect, or an interior designer and make them work, work really well for you because you're paying them. And so they need to work as a team and it's not about egos. It's not about the, the architect making his mark. Mm. We're here to serve the client mm. and create spaces that reflect who they are. I can imagine that would be quite a difficult task. And it's interesting what you say about you have to be quite psychologically minded in terms of reading people to be able to get tease things out of them, I suppose. Um, because I'd feel like if I was a designer, I'd probably get carried away with trying to force my own subjective um, yeah. ideas of what I think good designers yeah. are people, you know. Uh, but you know what the cool thing is that you miss out? If I'm so focused on my agenda and what I want to achieve in my specific likings, mm-hmm. you actually miss out on the really interesting quirks of your clients. Mm-hmm. And it's in those quirks that you can pull some really cool design concepts and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, like we had this one client and we met, we met with him two, three times and every meeting right at the beginning he'll talk about his uh, experience in japan how he went over there for a work trip stayed in this flash hotel and he loved the shower and the shower experience and he was saying like in japan you know you go to shower it's almost like a bit of a ritual whereas in the western culture we get in and we get out and we get on with it um and he was talking about how there was a seat in there and you almost like sit and relax um uh, as a designer like I need to listen to that and figure out why he's telling me that every time we meet. Mm. Cause if he's telling me that in the 
every meeting we've had so far, then that has to be something that might be quite important to him. Mm-hmm. And, I, and me as a designer, I need to take that on board and figure out and unpack that for him. Yeah, that's cool. And I can imagine that's probably the most exciting part now that you say that because, you know, uh, I'll go on a bit of a rant here uh, and hopefully I can tie it back to a question. But even today, you know, I was thinking of um, what am I going to ask Tonga on the podcast? And I was sitting in the dentist's office uh, practice just before the podcast. uh, And I was looking around and kind of trying to make sense of the interior and how they designed that building. And I was sitting in there and I just felt it was very much kind of um, kitschy and pastiche and sort of like really using quite overplayed design features. And I realized how not so often I'll walk into a building and really be taken aback by the interior layout of that building. Uh, Maybe that's just, I'm not kind of tuned in to that sort of thing. But there's a few times where you walk inside and you're like, wow, I just need to sit down and look at this. It's, it's awesome. You know? Uh, so I guess I wonder again, when, when you're saying you're trying to tease out the quirks from the individual clients, how do you make sure that that quirk stays unique to them in, in their space and doesn't become just pastiche of, oh, I like the way Japanese showers feel. I think with the clients that we've worked with so far, there's always some sort of design aspect that represents them. It represents something that's really important to them. Sometimes that's replicated in what we do in the showers and the wet rooms because they want because they they want to have a great experience in the shower. And so we we measure up the shower and we consider the depth, the width, the height, and the space spaces some people um majority of new zealand just like grays and whites and very neutral they don't particularly like taking a risk and then other people want to put really cool feature walls um other people use kitchens differently and they cook differently and so they're very specific about how that the appliances that we put in those kitchens and the heights of benches and the you know how many drawers and how many cupboards we have people who hate this and love that and so we would always sway towards what they love and what will what will make their lives better when they use those spaces um and so the cool thing is that every client is different so every job will have that slight quirkiness to it because of the client um which is cool because i would as a designer i want to be able to bring value to people who employ it us to design for them and so if I were just to copy and paste that would just be me ripping off a whole bunch of people and that doesn't sit well with me um so I always try and make sure that the spaces reflect some part or some aspect of our client mm-hmm. mm, definitely so how do you uh, I, I suppose people who approach an interior designer are probably a bit more daring than the average person who are doing construction work in terms of do you find that they're willing to take more risks? I mean, you say, especially Kiwis are pretty, um, you think they're quite mellow in the, in the choices of the inside of their house? Or or do you find the people who would come to you specifically are, are a bit more willing to hear you out uh, in terms of doing things a bit differently? Um, one thing I've noticed is that Kiwis are a little bit obsessed with um, resale. And it's like, 
they spend all this money, but they're so cons- they're always thinking about the resale. And you know, if we did something a little bit bold, we wouldn't be able to resell this house. And sometimes I have to remind them that it's just paint, that it's just wallpaper, that it's just furniture, um, and that can be replaced if someone absolutely hates it. Mm. Um, but what I always talk about with my clients is that, like. Our clients are just normal Kiwis. They have worked really hard. They've saved and they're in a position where they can spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars to renovate their entire house or to have an addition. So the budgets we're working with aren't massive all the time. They're just small. And so the conversation I have with our client is what's really important to you. If we, if you're going to remortgage your house and, you know, and spend $250,000, what can I do to create value for you? How do I ensure that the money that you've spent that's going to increase your mortgage is going to turn around and serve you because you're going to live in this house. You plan on living in this house for the next five, six years and raising your children here. Um, And that's a conversation we have. And we talk about what's really important because you're going to spend a lot of money and I need to make sure that you, you sit down at the end of this job and enjoy the spaces that we've created. And I think that's where the client gets value. And so they're quite happy to make sure that, that there are strong parts of that, that they love specifically for them. And when it's time for them to sell or move on, then, you know, they'll deal with it when they come to that. But um, mm. I think it's important to, we, we get a few customers or our clients who are always worried about what their neighbor's doing. And so I have to remind them that, like when you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, spend it so that you can enjoy it, not so that you can keep up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. And so it really helps us really nut down what's really important to them. Sometimes for them, it's having a bigger space for their kids to grow because they've got young children. Um, And so, and they see the value in say having an addition or extending their house so that they can, it works, it becomes a better family home. And so, Sometimes the value isn't tangible, physical, flashy looking things. Sometimes the value is creating a better experience for families to have in their homes. Mm. Mm, indeed. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a bit of a shame, really, the Kiwi obsession with resale. Um, it, I could imagine, well, in fact, I, I know because I've built a few sort of subdivision houses or I've been into plenty where they're pretty sterile boring environments uh just to be honest it's a bit rough but yeah. you know they're very samey and and you can imagine that the people are like well at least we know we can sell it and someone else will want to buy it um but it's yeah when i walk into those houses uh it's very hard to learn about the people who live in them from those houses if you know what i mean uh whereas if you learn if you sorry if you walk into a house where someone whether they're an interior designer or themselves have done something pretty unique. I find that a, a pretty fun experience. Um, yeah. And really it's important because gosh, we spend so much of our time indoors in our own house. Mm. You want it to feel like it's your place. Uh, so it must be quite a rewarding job getting to be able to make uh, spaces for people that, they can sit back and feel that represent themselves and they feel comfortable in, and they can kind of live their best lives between those mm. four walls, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, I think like nobody wants to go to work, work their ass off and then pay your bills and pay your mortgage and come home and sit in a room of grey white. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think like homes is, can be people's biggest investment mm -hmm. and um, I feel like you have to enjoy it and you have to get value out of it. Otherwise, you're, you're almost, you just, you're obsessed with, on selling it or when it comes time to sell how much money I can make. And it's just, sometimes we need to pause and understand what's really important in life. Sometimes being healthy, having a healthy family is massive and being able to have a roof over your head and um, have your family around you, are, you know, trumps a whole lot of other stuff. Mm. And yeah, and it's, it's a really interesting conversation when I talk about that with our clients, because you can kind of see the light switch switching in the head and, and them understanding, yeah, I work so hard and we, you know, our lifestyle is busy, but when I come home, I want to be able to enjoy my family and really relax. And, you know, so it's like an emotional and physical and even like a spiritual um, place, you know, our spaces. And so, so it's important that people feel like that they can recharge in that sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't remember what it was and it wasn't just um, during lockdown, but I'm pretty sure we spend something like 90% of our time indoors. Um, and yeah, it's such a massive thing. Uh, I know I was speaking on another podcast I had with uh, Tim, who's a kind of furniture maker. And I was talking to him about, I think maybe we undervalue the role that design can play in our lives, like you say, kind of spiritually and how we're not as connected as we should be to design around us. Um, mm. You know, uh, we might use a desk at home um, every night for work or study or whatever it may be, but never really give it two thoughts about what that desk looks like or who made it and how it suits that room and how it could change the space if you change the desk. Um, and it, it might sound a bit pedantic and silly, but I think, I think, I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think we undervalue design? I think, um, I think design, especially interior design, there is a bit of a cliche around it. And so when I tell people I'm an interior designer, people think, oh, you must get to pick pretty cushions and throws and like decorate people's homes. And to be honest, I've probably in the last three, in the last three, four years, I've maybe done two or three jobs that involve, um, like styling and decorating. Um, so I think as designers, we just need to let people know that we are far more capable than just pr picking pretty cushions and furniture, but we can design specific spaces that serve the clients that serve them. And so when people talk about is this going to how like is this going to be an expensive kitchen and so we so i always ask them well you guys tend to just hang around the kitchen that seems to be the place that you you and your family um gravitate towards and you like cooking and the kids like doing this and this in the kitchen so i guess it makes sense for us to invest a bit of, of that budget towards designing and developing a really cool kitchen because that then that kitchen turns around and it serves you as a client because you can um, you get so much more out of the space. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, 
Um, I'll ask you something else now. I guess we're talking about design and, and how your your views on it. And I, and I wonder what's um, what's sort of your dream project if you had one or, or what's something that you'd really like to pursue within the interior design space that um, that could lie in the future for you? So I got a bit of a bucket list. Oh, right. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, so one of them is to build homes or build build homes in the Pacific Islands because um, every cycling season that comes through basically destroys <laughs> the tin houses that they've built and um, I'm really interested in what that could look like. Mm-hmm. Currently people build a western house and they dump it in the Pacific Islands and I think there are far too many talented uh, um, designers out there that can tackle this problem. So that's one of them. Um, I'd really love to design or work or design a medical center again it's because it opens up the opportunity to think about the people that go in to see the doctor and that relationship with you know patients doctors and um i remember doing an assignment on a medical center when i was studying and i just thought man hospitals and you know doctor surgeries are so yuck um and when you're going to the doctors generally it's because something's not quite right and it's not anything good and so i thought it'd be quite cool to be able to explore how can we explore the idea of creating hope and creating a space of i guess hopefulness of healing because nobody goes to the doctors when they're when they're healthy generally something's up and so it would be nice to be able to influence the space to counteract that feeling of when people walk in there Mm. and it'd be quite cool to explore that so that's one on my list and the other one was churches because i've i have been brought up going to church um and that's my upbringing and so i'm quite fascinated with church buildings um and gothic architecture and we're renovating a bunch of pacific island churches at the moment in hamilton um which is really cool but again i'm fascinated by the experience that people uh, have within churches and the ceremonies and the interactions and i think it'd be quite cool as a designer to really purposely design and purposely create spaces where it um it serves for that purpose mm. yeah mm. a little bit eerie fairy but like oh no not yeah. at all not at all yeah i'd love to build a, a church or a religious building for the same reason you kind of yeah you know you've um you've got a lot of work to do to kind of uh to create those feelings like you say and mm. it's interesting i mean i'm sure you could tell us a little bit about how you were trained in terms of how that comes across. I think, you know, for, for you saying that the idea of, for example, for the medical center, how do we create hope or a sense of um, safety? You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty out of it thing to think, okay, like, you know, which, which colors and uh, kind of, you know, how high should the benches be and, and uh, how should the room be laid out and how many seats is right here and, you know, what plants where it's, uh, it's a lot to think about, you know, it's quite like a multidisciplinarian thing, really. Uh, Obviously, you're, you're designing a whole space, there's a lot that goes into 
the inside of a of a space especially like a medical center gosh it's um so yeah just out of interest i mean if you can if you can how 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 are interior designers trained to be able to put all those things together and and see you know not just um things individually but as an entirety how do you create a religious feeling how do you create a sense of safety a sense of hope whatever it may be within a space um, I think it, re- it requires the designer to be very empathetic mm. towards the people who use the spaces and really put yourselves in their shoes and what, it's, what that experience is like. And it's only by doing that that you can understand the other side of the coin. And then as a designer, you jump back and then you're like, okay, so that's the experience. Those are the emotions. Those are the concerns and the fears that, you know someone sick walking into the hospital is experiencing how do i as a designer bring hope and how do i bring healing how do i create a space and set the tone in a space that creates an atmosphere where those people can feel just a little bit more encouraged a little bit more lifted um yeah that's how i kind of it's a a problem I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it my design philosophy, but that's always been something that I always refer back to, is to be really empathetic towards the client and to try and put myself in their shoes and understand them a bit more. And that helps me kind of nut out the psychology of who they are and how they behave and how they react and how they treat things. Mm. Um, and then I put on my designer hat and then designed specifically to kind of meet those touch points yeah i'm just thinking as you're saying gosh like to me interior designing it it sounds like a pretty difficult job because for one what i'm hearing from you is that you have to very much be a people person and you have to be empathetic and you have to kind of be a bit of an emotional sponge almost uh, but then again, you have to be quite technical and you have to think about things yeah. and objects, you know, those are quite opposites really. Usually people yeah. don't have both of those going. You're either a, you're either a details person or you're a people person, you know? So do you find yeah. that you have a pretty good balance within yourself to be able to do both? Um, I'm a bit of both. Cause I've always known that I'm a people person. Like I'd rather hang out with clients than sit down drawings but you know when I'm fixated on a concept and an idea I have to sit down and draw it out or I have to sketch it out and so that's where my obsession of like details comes in um yeah but it's I guess part of the frustration and if I talk about the interior design industry um some of the frustrations I experience is that people uh brush us with the same color and they think that all we do is styling we decorate we pick paint colors we pick pretty fabrics and that's all we do mm-hmm. um but in my role and and at Ness, we we go way back and we dig deeper and so we are real conceptual and we are very specific and so and it comes down to like uh we're doing quite a few renovations and so we've design the bathrooms the kitchens the living spaces um and in those drawings with we specify right down to the hardware of that um of what's being used in the kitchen joinery because different hardware enables you to use or open a cupboard or pull out a drawer slightly different Mm. so if you specify a specific hardware 
that experience for the client is a total game changer. Mm. And so, the, you know, these specific hinges, if you want to have like offset cupboards and show like a really pretty ply timber. And so that detail, many people don't think that interior designers do, but that's actually part of our role. Mm. Um, we go so far as when we're designing bathrooms, we send the builder um, elevations of each wall and we show the height of where we want toilet rolls hung. We show the height of, you know, where things are placed, where vanities go. And we even do like tile setups. So we send drawings to show, you know, where we think the approximate center line for the tile setup is and how we want those tiles to be joined and whether we want them to be mitered. Because again, it's that look, that visual uh, idea that you've got in your head and you have to translate it to specific details so that your builder and your trades can execute it on site. And it also makes their life so much more easier because they pull it out and they know where to nog, they know where to put reinforced, you know, and they, they know what they're tiling and they know how the tiles need to be joined or whether we want specific bars or transition bars or anything like that. And so, yeah, that's, it's like a big rabbit hole. And so when we talk to clients come and see us for the first time, I have to almost educate them on a bit of, what we do mm. and then they understand that we don't just pick colors and pretty fabrics and dress up rooms that we actually go right back to bare bones of a building and start from there mm. um, and it's, it's a good opportunity I guess as a business owner to um, show the client the value that we bring to the table mm-hmm. um, and that helps them understand what they what we can deliver for them but we also make their tradies lives like heck of a lot more easier because we can supply drawings and they know what sort of substrate they need because you know we we want to tile floor to ceiling and the tiles weigh you know 25 kilos per square meter it actually helps the builder be able to supply the correct material for the substrate it helps them be able to quote those jobs better and accurate and so yeah, I think there's lots of ways where interior designers play such a crucial role. Um, but yeah, so in my experience, a lot of our clients they've come, they've used an interior designer for the first time, and um, and they they always say, "Oh, I never knew that you did that. I never knew that you were so specific." Mm. But um, we are, and I think it's it's cool. It's a bit of a geeky detail. As a creative, it's like when you're painting and you kind of, you don't stop until you've nailed it perfectly. And I think mm. that's how I feel about detail and detailed drawings and being very specific on specifications and notes on drawings is if I can ensure that I give the builder all the notes and all the details then there's a good chance he's going to execute it perfectly at the other end. Mm, mm, true. Yeah. Cause is it, 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 do you find it a little bit stressful as well? Because, you know, as an interior designer, you're making these, um, like you say, some of them can seem quite small details and maybe people wouldn't think you'd uh, detail to that detail, if you know what I mean, but uh, you're, you're quite front and center. Everything that you guys do, it's used or viewed or judged every day. And it's not like a, you know, the product or the service that you're providing is something that 
will last a long time. And someone, again, 90% of your time indoors, someone's looking at a feature wall that Tonga helped them create. Um, do you feel kind of stressed out at all by that? Or, or uh, do you wonder sometimes, uh, you know, after the fact of people still enjoying that space, uh, how does that work? The kind of after you've designed it and you're sitting at home and hoping that people are enjoying what you've created. Um, I think for me, the ultimate, I think the ultimate goal is that the clients enjoy the space. I'm not really too fussed on whether their friends like it or not. <laughs> um, you know, like, but for me, my job was to develop, deliver value for the client who's paying. And so if I, if I've done that job, then that's awesome. Um, in terms of, uh, when we do a little bit of commercial work for, I guess, more public spaces, I think for me, the win would be like stalking people who use those spaces in public and watching them interact with those spaces. And, you know, cause there'll be things that we do, like we will make a certain seat this high because we think it's, it's more user-friendly for elderly people. Um, and so we were very specific. And then, you know, if you get if you get the opportunity to see an elderly person use that seat and use it easily and be able to get up and down and enjoy the seat and it's not too small, it's not too big, it's just perfect, then I get a real buzz out of that. Like mm. to me, that's like, yeah, we nailed it. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's really small things. It's like when we do custom design furniture, it's making sure that all the dimensions at the depth of the seat is perfect and we work that out by watching our client because we you know we get like New Zealand is so diverse so we might get a Filipino family and they are generally half the size of me <laughs> um, you know and then we have um, businesses who maybe have an elderly clientele and so we have to be really considerate about them and how they would use a chair and so for me, the kick is seeing people experience those spaces and being able to use them well and those spaces serve the people who are using it. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not too fast. Like you can't please everyone and everyone's always going to have an opinion on something. But, you know, I think if I've delivered value and delivered a really great outcome for the people, for our clients and that to me, that's a win. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably what you'd have to judge yourself on because I guess designs, it's pretty subjective really, isn't it? Uh, it goes all sorts of directions. So um, I was going to ask, uh, oh, do you, find, do you find you can switch off the interior designer in, in yourself when you're going to a house you've never been in before, perhaps like a a party or an event in some building you haven't been to before. Can you, can you uh, stop it or can you not help? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually, it's, I think for me, it's, it's the opposite. Like I've had um, acquaintances and even friends be like, Oh, Tony, you can't come to my house cause it's a mess or you can't come to my house cause we haven't done this. And I'm like, I don't care. I I've come to see you. I haven't come to see your house. Um, and for me, interior design and just design is, is a creative outlet for me. It's me. If I wasn't designing, I would be painting. I would be building. I'd be sculpturing. I would be doing something creative. And so, um, 
I don't really care. Like mm. if I'm going to see a friend, I'm going to see a friend. I'm not going to see their house. And um, it's a little bit frustrating when people are, are hesitant to like have you over because they're worried about stuff. And I'm like, who cares? It's just stuff. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you go see them and they're like, oh, please don't look too hard at my orange pendants or whatever. And I'm like, I don't care. I just come to hang out with you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So do you feel like you say when you're painting or when you're designing, is that all from the kind of same creative expression for you? You said yeah, you're a creative. Absolutely. It's all from the same space, you think? Yeah, it is. I I love, um, I just kind of like all things creative and it's very hard for me to separate my job and just being creative because they kind of overflow into each other and like I've kind of gotten into photography, um, which is a bit of fun and I still want to get back into painting, but, you know, it comes down to time. And so for me, they all kind of interconnect and that's just who I am. Um, and I'm, I've, some most times I feel really honored that I get to turn up and hang out with clients and hang out with builders and nut out detail. Like sometimes it just doesn't feel like work. And so, yeah, I feel really stoked and really privileged that I can kind of almost in a real sweet spot uh, for myself. Definitely. Yeah. Getting paid to be creative. That's uh, you've unlocked a cool thing. Yeah. And the cool thing as a creative, because I'm a designer, I don't build what I design, but I love being on site. Um, a lot of our projects that we design, our clients uh, engage in us to project manage. So it's quite cool because we get to see the beginning right through to the end. Um, and so it's really awesome being on site because I find the boys on the tools are just as creative as me. They just have a different outlet. Mm -hmm. And it's really it's something that I've noticed as I spend more time on site that um, – they, they all have this really creative strength in them. And it's awesome to nut out the details because sometimes I'll design and draw something and you physically can't build it on site. <laughs> and that's cool. And so, you know, the builder and I sit down and we nut out a way to problem solve it. And that's, to me, that's part of the craft. And it's really cool because uh, the builder gets to be part of that creative process of problem solving. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, we resolve the issue and I think the client gets an awesome result because their team on site work together to resolve those issues rather than the tiler making a call that's easier for me to lay these tiles because it's less fiddly rah, 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 rah. Mm. and some so yeah I think I think there's a missed opportunity sometimes when uh, various trades um, don't work together even even designer and builder designer and tiler um, designer and the cabinet maker and the joiner you know these heaps of cool opportunities for us to really collaborate and create together if if everyone's willing to come to the party yeah they agree definitely mm. we need to be talking to each other more I want to kind of take a step back and and uh, zoom out a little bit and ask a more more general question I guess we've kind of been skirting around it a little bit but I wonder something that I'm quite interested in and I tried to have the conversation with uh, Jade Kaka who came on the podcast um, a while ago an architectural designer um, about how we design in a way that represents New Zealand or in a a way that 
encompasses some of our culture and how that transpires into design. Um, I'm kind of interested in that. I feel like maybe we don't do it well or often enough, or we haven't figured out how to do it yet. Uh, I'm just interested in what you have to say about that, if, if anything at all. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, when you answer that question, I automatically think about the last couple of years. I have been working with a building company up in Auckland, and we have been designing, um, I guess, family homes. And some of those projects were in addition. So there was a family home, and then we were adding another smaller home to the site and then there would be a big firewall or fire door between the two um, and to me I think I had to stop and think you know why are people doing this and maybe it's a reflection of the way people are living at the moment or people wanting to live um, we did four new builds and all of those new builds had a family house up in the front section and then we were building another family house in the rear section and there was multiple generations living on the site um, with like two or three dwellings and so that's something that you have to stop and take notice of if we talk about New Zealand landscape and the New Zealand how do New Zealanders live um, yeah so that kind of made me stop and have a think we've just finished a six bedroom new build in Auckland um, and it's one house, but two dwellings. And then there's a big firewall and a fire door that separates the two dwellings. Each dwelling has their own bedrooms, three bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchen, living areas. Um, and it's just three generations of family living together on one site. Um, and so maybe that's a changing landscape of how New Zealanders want to live. Mm -hmm. I don't know like um, so there's lots of changes that are happening around us but I don't know if anyone's taking notice mm. and I don't know if anyone is meeting um, or delivering homes that cater for you know more than one family it's all I call it village living <laughs> yeah um, how do you think we build better spaces better cities better communities a lot of the development at least i can speak for in canterbury the way that christchurch and canterbury is growing we're kind of sprawling out all over the place and um mm. there's not there is the council's doing quite a good job of developing kind of medium density living options in the central city but i think kiwis aren't rushing to take them up at least down here i don't know what it's like up in the north island whether they're more accustomed to that kind of living especially maybe in somewhere like auckland where apartments and um basically more community style living is is something that's the norm but uh what do you think what do you think the future new zealand kind of living environment looks like you know obviously we're a pretty growing population um, how do we best encompass what it is to be New Zealand, what it is to be a Kiwi in the way that we live, like you say, in these, maybe the way forward and something that can be adopted, are, you know, larger dwellings or closer living with multi-generations um, living in the same place? That's a good question. Um 
I think one thing that I see and sometimes can be a frustration is um, there's this big need to always big build bigger, mm. even um, like the building groups who sell house and land packages. It is the smallest section with the biggest house possible on that site. Um, and I just think maybe we're a little bit obsessed with bigger and better and having more and having more things and having more expensive things and fancy things. And I wonder um, whether the that gets that kind of really muddles up what's really important. And um, I think it... Um, we currently live in like an 80 square meter house. It's tiny and um, we kind of live on top of each other, but we survive. And so I think um, people get accustomed to having an ensuite, having to another second living room. Mm. And I don't know if that's a good thing, but that seems to be the houses that are being built. And so it kind of sets the, an expectation that if you don't have an ensuite, then it's not cool or but we lived with one bedroom three homes for many many years you just look at the old state houses um that were built and they were just your typical one 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 bathroom three bedroom kitchen dining and a lounge nice backyard like yeah. um yeah so i it's, it's a bit uncomfortable for me because i see it happening around me and i don't know if i have the power or the influence or the ability to bring something good to the table mm. um yeah it's really one thing that i do find frustrating is that what i see at least my perspective is that a lot of these um i guess high density homes that are coming up is very money driven mm. um and it's about somebody making a lot of money and being able to sell them and the the homes are minimum spec and um the developers are always asking everybody who's supplying to give them a sharp number. Um, so I think that, that that drive for making money really interferes with our, uh, the opportunity to create communities because we're almost sacrificing communities for money. And uh, generally only one person's working with a lot of money or, you know, um, the general community are at the sacrifice of that. So it is a bit of a touchy, it's a touchy subject because I still quite can't quite fathom or fully understand what's going on. I understand that these are more homes and I, but I also have seen firsthand homelessness and I have gone, clients have sent me to look at properties for emergency housing and these properties are hotels, motels that they don't even meet the healthy home standards. Um, but those owners are milking that asset. They are running that asset to the ground and they're making a lot of money at the expense of community. Mm. So yeah, they're big questions, but the exciting thing, I don't want to leave, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but the exciting thing is, um, you know, I'm working alongside people who are really passionate about bringing actual answers to that problem. Mm. And so they're working in the background and I'm working in the background doing as much as I can to try and bring some solutions to that. And those solutions 
um, you know, I guess Jay talked about is looking at um, papakainga, looking at um, Māori land and how do we, how do we utilise that so that Māori people can flourish and that they can have communities on their own whenua and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, eh? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it is. It's something that I don't know much about and I certainly don't have the answers, but I think it's, uh, it is a tricky question, but I like answering it and it's something I'm kind of obsessed with lately, just that idea mm. of community and, and how we are going to live in the future. Um, you know, I hear, I don't, um, my kids are pretty young, so I don't have this yet, but I hear stories about, you know, people perhaps maybe in their forties and fifties who have children who are, um, stuck to their devices and, and perhaps us adults don't realize how much we are as well. And when we get home in these spaces where hopefully we're trying to, as designers or as builders or, or whatever it may be we're trying to create a sort of family environment even though um we're kind of working to budgets and the norm and especially the old resale kind of value always lurking over clients heads but uh it seems like those the way that we're building or the a lot of the sort of houses we do there's a real kind of even though you might have two living rooms um no one's really living in those spaces or the communal <laughs> spaces aren't really there you know i i hear so many stories yeah. of you know you get home and people barely even have dinner together anymore and everyone's just off to their own rooms on their own device and um rinse and repeat yeah. it's it's a shame and i wonder if we can do better as um, i'm not a designer but you know as designers as architects as people who work on the built environment to sort of hold on to that sense of community because it's it's strange you know we're more connected than whenever we've ever been in terms of technology but yet we seem to be getting further and further away from each other which is a bit scary really and i wonder if design can have a part to play in bringing us back to that especially culturally like you say um what jade was bringing up on the podcast and and even like you say what you you have some ambitions to go to the Pacific Islands and kind of create um, houses that are meant for the people who are going to live in them. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a difficult question, but if you have anything else to say, and I'd, I'd like to hear your opinion on how we can kind of, even through interior design, how we can um, bring that feeling back, that kind of family feeling that that where people want to spend time in those spaces together. I, I listen to a lot of people talk about consumerism and minimalists and all that sort of stuff. And I'm kind of like, to me, it's, it's people talk about minimalism because they like the aesthetic of it, but they're not prepared to actually commit to it and live that way. Um, so I think if I would be really keen to encourage people to really practice what they preach, if, um, so lots of people love the whole minimalist look and really clean aesthetics and things like that but to achieve that look you need to get rid of all your rubbish <laughs> and you need to just buy you need to buy you need to invest well in quality items mm -hmm. um, 
And when they break, you repair them and you repair them until you absolutely cannot repair it. Mm. Um, and I think that will change the behavior of people mm. and force them to really appreciate, um, I guess, less rather than more. Mm. Um, we've done a couple of uh, homes that clients have bought off a, a group builder and it had a nice open plan dining room, kitchen, and it had two living rooms right next to each other. <laughs> um, so on the plans, it's just a massive rectangle and that's just labeled living room and lounge, but essentially it's one whole space. And then, you know, and then to me, I'm just like, oh, that's such a sales, you know, trick to, you know, fish you in that you've got, you know, a four bedroom house with uh, two living areas and, two bathrooms and a double garage and it looks good on paper but in real real world terms it's actually impractical <laughs> because you're just going to have this massive rectangle of a space um, and you're going to get annoyed when the kids watch cartoons because you're right next to them trying to do something else and it's noisy and so some of, sometimes in those instances we come across that kind of design it's really frustrating because it's purely just someone trying to sell a concept and build a house and sell the idea that, you know, you're getting this massive 200 square meter house. Mm. Um, but in real life, it actually, the house is never going to serve the people who live it properly mm. because of the way it was designed. So yeah, it's annoying when you see kind of that type of design happening. That's frustrating. Um, and I'm almost encouraging uh, clients to not necessarily build big, but really think, think um, strongly on what's important to them in their lives and how they live and use their bedrooms, your bathrooms, the living areas. And then that's what you build. You don't need to be building something over 200 square meters just because that's what everyone else has got. And that's what your mates have. And, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, I think if we change and encourage consumers mindsets on, on that, then hopefully we can reestablish what's really important and what's really valuable. Yeah, I think that's a, it's certainly quite a hill to climb, you know, especially when mm. we're so ingrained with that um, group house sales pitch and we, we a lot of Kiwis buy into that idea um, and, you know, we're always worried about resale, um, but we're not willing to kind of dare to, make a space our own almost maybe mm. in that respect. And we, like I see so many people who, who they, they don't want to go down the group builder route. They don't want to buy a house land package, but then the alternative is sourcing some land, engaging in an architect and engaging in other trades required. And to them that's daunting. Mm. And so the easier route is to jump on the house and land package. Um, which I think is a shame. And I think, you know, we had one client and that's exactly what happened. They contacted me and they said, we're looking at building, but it's so overwhelming and I don't know what to do. I can't deal with this. And, you know, they're living in part of Waikato, which is expanding and growing. And I thought, oh, let me do some research and find out what's available. So I did some research, found out, um, developments that, that were being released for sale and sections coming up and flick that information through and then uh heard back from them and they had bought a house and land package and I was like oh interesting why is that she's like oh it was just getting too hard 
Um, and so you almost have those group builders almost dictating what that housing landscape looks like because of the efficiency and I guess the easier route that they paint for potential uh, clients. Um, so they've got a lot to answer to. Yeah, they do. They've made it too easy. That's for sure. Uh, and yeah, people generally don't like doing difficult things maybe, uh, but, but the, the, it's a legitimate kind of concern because you're right. There is no, um, you either, you either buy a really expensive existing piece of land, um, you know, in a, in the city, um, or wherever it may be, um, or you go down into the suburbs and, and get your group house, um, there's nothing really in between. It's pretty rare that, you know, a house will get knocked over or, or you can afford to go and knock your old house over and, and build something new. Uh, especially if you really want to start from scratch, really what other option does, especially, you know, the average Kiwi family have than, than going to, um, yeah, I was about to say going, uh, certain home builders, but going to, going to those, that option because it is very easy and you know it's going to work everyone else is doing it um you can resell it and uh easy but i think we need to think about our spaces a little bit more we spend so much time in them um and it, it's important and we have to think like you say about what happens after uh, we consume up all those things in that house and and then we go for more and you know new zealand we're in a interesting position because we're quite a new country and we are growing quite quickly we have an opportunity if we pull together and if um legislation maybe relaxes uh of of changing the way we build in in new zealand like you say we we don't have to build so big, you know, uh, we've got a great opportunity to utilize our climate a lot more in the way we build. We can build a lot more passively. Um, even our stands yeah. at the moment for our houses, you know, these group houses, they're pretty, they're pretty cheap and nasty. Um, and yeah, you know, there's no thought of orientation in those subdivisions. It's just, you know, a gable facing the street and away you go. Um, it's a shame. It's a bit of a waste, I, I think. Hopefully, hopefully the next generation can speak up and do something about that. Yeah, I think it's not. I think everyone has a part to play and is responsible in some aspects. Um, I'm reminded of one time um, just before Christmas, I went to an open home for a house, and it's just an old house um, in Ngaruahia, and old character house with a reasonable size section and you know I'm looking for a family home so I went out went out to the open home and the first thing the real estate agent says to me is like oh we've we've, we've got permission to subdivide and you can subdivide this and subdivide this and I'm just like mate I'm not looking to subdivide I'm just looking for a family home like no wonder why we're so obsessed with property and and greed to an extent because you know it's just like if I buy this I can make this straight away in two years time this is the capital you know this is how much my property gets valued after two years mm -hmm. and it just creates this frenzy of this need to consume or to make more and I think yeah I guess my values is slightly different I'm looking for a family home and a bit of a yard for my kids to grow up and I am a bit of a fan of character homes so Yo, you know that's my vibe but mm. 
yeah, it's um, it's I feel a little bit sad to kind of stand on the sidelines and watch that sort of behaviour in the environment happen. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, not to harp on on about it, but it does kind of it it degenerates the urban environment really that that people are willing mm. to um, you know uh, exploit you know, exploit our land in that way, I guess. It's a bit sad, really. Um, and there's no real thought to what happens next after you subdivide it and cram, you know, more things and, <laughs> and into the country. Um, yeah, anyway, um, maybe we should change tack a little bit, let me think. I I'm wondering, <laughs> what do you think, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about culture and design and I'm interested into how you think those two kind of influence each other and even you know what what can a more diverse construction industry built environment look like uh i guess in, in the hopes of creating something authentic that uh, authentic to new zealand uh i've just i'm obsessed with that question and i'm, I'm asking everyone mm. i guess so yeah um one of the things that i see every day in my job and in what I do and being a Pacific Island woman um, and a, being a Pacific Island businesswoman and a designer it's, it's really I've had some really crazy experiences and really interesting experiences um, we, we're really proud to say that New Zealand is diverse and that we've got this multi-culture that makes that's one of the special things about New Zealand but I think if we are really proud of that then we really need to let all those voices be heard mm -hmm. or give them an opportunity to be heard and then I think that's when we can really utilize the diversity in New Zealand um, in terms of the building industry and design industry um, it's not a diverse voice that's being heard um, it's generally the people in power are not diverse people. <laughs> How do I say that without being really obvious? Um, I There have been plenty of times where I've gone to designer events, been invited by a supplier or by um, a colleague, and people mistake me for the caterer, mm. and they... It's, I, just, I just crack up because I think it's hilarious. Um, but I don't blame them because like I look around the room and I am the black sheep in the room. Mm. And so if we want to encompass a more diverse building industry, then we have to be prepared to kind of listen to the minor voices mm. or the minority. Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of gold in there that the generic mainstream miss out because um, I guess they're just oblivious. They have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the cool things that being a Pacific Island designer, um, I do business a little bit differently and I relate differently. And it's only recently that I've been comfortable with that. I, I have always felt like I have to behave like, you know, the boys club in business to be able to have a successful business. And it's only recently that I'm learning that it's okay to do business slightly different because of my values and my cultural upbringing and it's okay. Um, but what I'm experiencing is that people are really receptive to that. Mm. Um, some people are just 
don't understand and that's okay that's you're probably never gonna work with them and they're probably not your client but to those who are receptive to it we actually end up uh, building some really good working relationships and I find even my clients are really receptive to uh, I guess my um, personality and the way that I do um, that I have relationships with our clients and often as a designer you see some really you see the good and the bad side of clients you have clients that argue in front of you really badly and you see you see it a lot and you have to be the marriage mediator like we don't charge for that but you know you kind of by default do that and so you see clients when they're most vulnerable sometimes too um and so the relations we have relationships we have are really unique and are really special and there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of you walk out of a job that was two years and you you almost become friends or you know you've seen them at their worst you've seen them when they're stressed you've seen them when they're worried and when they're excited and you know when they're freaking out and so um I think for me as a Pacific Island designer I have to relax into the um just the concept that I do business differently and I relate to people differently mm. and some clients and some people will connect with that really well and others won't. And I just have to be happy in that. Um, but I think on the flip side of that is that people need to embrace that others do things differently. Um, even in the business world, um, in the marketplace, sometimes there's this, you know, there's this paved out path that you're expecting to walk to be a successful business um, and what I'm learning is that I kind of have a bit of a different flavor but so far it's working for me and it's okay and I've even begun to notice other Pacific businesses kind of look over the fence and think oh you seem to be doing all right when you turn up to site in your jeans and your t-shirt and what have you because um, that's that's how I roll um, and yeah I think yeah, it's just, um, I think we just miss out the opportunity to learn about other cultures and how other people re-interact and behave if we are set on a certain way of behaving and doing and doing business and doing design and building. Mm. Um, and a classic example, I see it all the time, is when on site, you really get to understand, the, you see the different dynamics of a business it might be the plumbers it might be the tiler it might be the roofers and um, immediately you can kind of tell and get a real good feel of what that company's like because of the way that team interacts with each other mm -hmm. um, so yeah cool yeah I could I mean it, it, surely it's especially important in your field and in, in design because uh, I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I could just imagine my my experience, at least with um, interior designers, uh, is kind of like a mini skirt and bleach blonde hair, and um, <laughs> yeah. all, the, all the boys go wild when they come yeah. onto site. Um, yeah, and and they've kind of, at least my experience in like uh, dealing with an interior designer designing the house, it's. I'm not really yeah. impressed because it's it's just the same old. You can tell they're kind of they've got the handbook and they've looked at Pinterest a few times and they're just yeah pumping out that clean 
aesthetic uh, minimalist look the, the scandy look isn't it <laughs> yeah that's it and it's like well that's not for everyone and and i guess some people are just really comfortable being told exactly what they should have in their house whereas i like the idea of your approach where you're really willing to sit down with someone and obviously make them relax and 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 try and tease out what it is about them um and working that way up instead of going you know here's what you should be having and uh, yeah. we'll take it down a few steps if you try and argue with me i guess but yeah I, I like yeah it. what you've described is definitely yeah sorry yeah what uh, you've described good. is the typical interior designer unfortunately yeah um you know she's all dolled up and she has a beautiful face of makeup and she drives a bmw and all this um and that is i'm the opposite of that and i i'm on building sites i'm not wearing a mini skirt to work sorry i'm not no. you know the old time I might wear a dress, but it's because I want to wear a dress and I just happen to need to be out on site. But um, I think that's what I love about what I do is that I can just be me. And because I am the boss, um, I guess I'm not answerable to anyone, but I do, but it does give me the privilege to really create a new culture and create a, a different environment. That's not what your typical interior designer might be. And I think that's cool. I think it's an awesome opportunity. I had, we had a new client and I was dealing with his staff and then he was the new boss man, um, managing director. So I was going into the office to meet them. Um, and I met him and we did, had our meeting and I left. And it wasn't until afterwards he said to me, oh, you know, Tong, I only gave you the job because he turned up and turned up at our office wearing a band t-shirt. <laughs> and I thought that's hilarious. And I was just like, really and he's like well yeah because like I'm not your typical businessman businessman I don't like wearing suits and I like I like wearing pink scarves and things like that and so I thought oh wow that's quite cool because if I can just be who I am it makes other people feel comfortable to be who they are without having to uh, submit to the typical mainstream expectations of how you should look and dress and behave mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I thought that was funny. It was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, I like that, and I think I think we need more of that. I guess I don't know if you can really, um, if design or construction industry can bring that out of people, but I think hopefully we start to live in a world where people are more comfortable in their own shoes. You know, I I, I get that even as a carpenter, you get clients who will um, have a pretty cliche idea of who a builder is in their head and what they do on the weekend and what language they kind of speak. Um, and uh, yeah, I get all the time um, clients, you know, assume that I play rugby or go hunting or I'm out in the boat fishing on the weekend. It's just like, yeah, um, it's not my jam. Like there's a lot of different yeah. people who contribute to the, to this environment. It's just a shame that we have those cliches. Um, I think mm. like, and get rid of those and, and um yeah, I guess choose people more on their characters than what we assume they're going to be. Yeah, last week I was uh, at a building site going in for a site meeting and then um, a client had organized a bit of a smoko shout for the builders and so I was there to kind of drop it off and what have you. Mm -hmm. And the builders went on smoko and we sat outside on the grass um, sitting on some jib or something and um, they pull out the playing cards and they like, do the cards out and they start playing cards during smoke and they're like oh do you want to join Tonga and I'm like no nah, I'm sweet but I just thought it was hilarious it's the first time I've, 
I've like been a smoker where the guys pull out cards and play cards. Mm. I thought it was hilarious. And so you just never know, like you just can't assume that builders behave a certain way and they have a filthy mouth and they wear short shorts and you know, <laughs> those kind of stereotypes. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm always surprised by tradies on site and I always learn something new. I remember one time I went, uh, I was on a building site and Tyler was there and he was listening to classical music really loud. Mm. And I was just like, what is this? So I thought it might be some old guys. I was walking around the house trying to find where the Tyler is. It's just your, you know, middle average, middle-aged guy doing his job and he's listening to classical music. And I was like, yeah. that's a first. I've never heard classical music on, on the building site radio before. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Like, if you, um, I think if you don't get so hung up on stereotypes, you actually can, um, you then begin to see that there's so much diversity around us and, you know, different people have different quirks and it's a good thing and you should, mm. you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's like a bunch of boys sitting around under a tree playing cards at Smoko. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I've never heard that before. That's pretty cool. One thing that I've found at least as a tradie, uh, there seems to be, there's an interesting relationship between the trades and designers. Um, one that's almost a battlefield most of the time, at least my experiences with architects. Um, how do you see that relationship and how, how do you think that might even change in the future? You know, you, you certainly an advocate for us talking to each other more and leaning on each other's expertise a bit more. Um, each person kind of defends their ring uh, is how I've seen it play out in the past anyway. What, what do you think just in general about the relationship between trades and design? Um, yeah, I've heard some awful stories about architects and, you know, I've heard of situations where clients are distraught because they're too scared to tell an architect to change something because this architect's a top dog in, in New Zealand and, you know, it's his design. Um, but I think my philosophy around design and business, I my approach is that I am here to serve the client. So my agenda and my ego is set aside so that I can deliver the best outcome for the client. And for me to do that, um, I'm always considering the client when I'm on site and these problems and I'm talking with the trade and we're trying to resolve this problem. I'm always thinking, what would the client prefer? And then our conversations with the client, have there been instances where they've mentioned stuff that I need to stop and think about so that I can make a better decision for them on their behalf on site. Um, and I think if we had a bit more people, uh, even designers who just really put the ego aside and not get so hung up on their design. Um, my worst nightmare is if I is if I were to push a design concept, the client spent hundreds of thousands of dollars building it and then they hate it. Like that's my worst nightmare. And so, but for others, that's not the case. Their agenda is to push forward their concept and their design and to, you know, that this is the, um, I guess this is the hallmark trade of, you know, this is a such and such because you can tell it's got all of these. You can like, you can spot a David Trubridge light pendant from afar because it's got a very strong aesthetic and connection back to David. Um, and I think some designers get hung up on that. Mm. Um, in my case, that's not, that's not my agenda and that's not the motivator. 
the motivator is to deliver really positive outcomes for the client. And so you have to, I always, I'm always willing to work with trades and I'm always willing to learn. I learned so much off the guys, you know, cause in my mind, I think, well, we can do this and this. And he's like, well, no, because we compromise the waterproofing around this. And I'm like, ah, good idea. So how do we resolve that? Because I don't want my client's bathroom rotting, you know, five, six years time. That's horrible. And so, yeah, I think these, Ego is a big thing and also just doing the right thing and not being motivated by your reputation or being motivated by money um, or that. Um, yeah, so I think it's almost very much a, a ethical, almost like an ethical value or ethical question that you're questioning. Mm. Um, I think I tell clients, you know, put together a team of people who will work together for you. And if your team can't work together, then you need to eliminate that person because they're obviously not on your team. Mm. Um, and that's how I see it. Um, yeah. And designers, yeah, I've had builders who are like, well, you're the designer and I don't want to stuff it up for you. Um, and my comeback is like, well, I want to get the best outcome for the client. So let's work together to solve this. So let's work to get work together to resolve and come up with the best solution because I think designers miss out because tradies have so many skills and they problem solve so many things and to the naked eye they're just building a wall or they're just framing up something or they're you know um putting up cladding but they've their role is um they know so many tricks and you would be silly not to pick their brain because they often will come up with lots of solutions on how you can achieve a specific design or a specific look. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I don't want to miss out on that and I want to pick out their brain because there's a really good chance that we could create something together that the client's going to love. And that's always my motivator. So yeah, ego is a big thing and just people with the wrong motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but one thing I've seen and learned is that some trades don't communicate well. And so that can be often a barrier to understanding um, where they're coming from and being able to problem solve something or discuss something properly without things getting heated. Mm. Um, I always appreciate a builder who can kind of communicate exactly his frustration. um, And that's cool. I had one build on one job and he was like, he was obsessed with details and he, and it got to a point where it was a little bit annoying because he was stressing out the client. Mm. And I said to him, look, don't freak the client out. We can actually solve this problem. So just give me a call and we'll work it through. And um, we've almost finished this this job and that specific builder ended up moving to a different company and I miss him because his, his obsession with the detail was so valuable. Mm. And me being a designer, being a little bit obsessed with detail too. Um, yeah. So when you, yeah, when you get, when you come across those guys are just really good at their job and are really pedantic about those things, you can actually achieve so many, you can, you can achieve really great outcomes for your client. And I think that's really important. Mm. Um, and then there are guys who can't communicate very well, but are really good on the tools and they, they just need to build things with their hands. They're not, not very, good verbally but um you set them a task and they'll do it and they do it really well mm. um 
so yeah, it is kind of a bit of what's it called emotional intelligence um, to read different people and to find the best way to approach them and deal with them and work with them. Um, yeah, and I think there's heaps of room for designers to get better at that and um, for builders to, yeah, there needs to be this middle ground where the two work really well together because mm. nobody wins if you've got a designer and a builder fighting each other. The client definitely doesn't win. No, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, a little bit of emotional intelligence goes a long way, I think, especially when you're at the end of the day, you're working, someone's paying you to do that, you know, um, so it's important to make sure that they're satisfied. But I wonder not to play the devil's advocate, but almost to challenge you on that and, and see what you would say to this is that um, obviously you're focused on putting the client first and, and making sure you're adding value to to what they want to be doing. But then do you think if we kind of are really dictated by the client as as designers, as constructors, is there still opportunities to push design forward and to do things that haven't been done? I mean, there's plenty of things I would say that um, design choices that would probably a bit of pill to swallow for clients, but perhaps <laughs> um, pushed had a you know had a positive net effect for design in general, if you know what I mean, uh, or architecture. Um, you know, I, I I would guess that the kind of opposite of putting the client first person is someone who's really just interested in details only and and winning an award and and pushing design into the future and you know it's their way or the highway sort of person do we need that sort of person do you think we still need that sort of really radical design thinking who uh, quite stubborn who who's willing to you know not put their neck on the line, but to push design forward. Because, you know, if we let it lax um, and if we put it in the client's hands, do we, do we just all sit on big puffy couches and in ugly rooms? <laughs> yeah, no, I no, definitely there's, I think there's always room for really big, bold designers to really, you know, shake things up. I think there's always, I think that needs to always exist. Um, and I think it is marrying the right designer with the right client because there's clients out there who want to take a risk and they want to create these weird and wonderful massive sculpture type buildings and it's finding the right designer that's going to execute that for them and those two will have the best relationship and you know they would they would create something amazing together mm. not every client wants to take the easy road and the safe road mm. um in terms of like some of the commercial work we've done some clients are like oh well, you go and do this and then i'm excited to see what you design and you know right. and so that then i'm taking that as a bit of creative authority to let loose a little bit <laughs> and present it to the client and so it's never like i wouldn't say i play it safe all the time um i i weigh that up in terms of how much money and how much budget i have to spend mm -hmm. sometimes you can't um be radical when people don't have a big budget mm -hmm. sometimes you just have to make really wise decisions to get them the best that they can get out of this you know their, their budget and then there are other clients who 
they want to stand out and they want to be radical and they've commissioned you to go and do something radical on their behalf. Um, so yeah, totally. There's always, I think that's really important. I think designers should always be brave to think outside the box and be radical and, and really push the envelope. Um, it would be pretty boring to not do that. I think designers are naturally creative and they're quite inquisitive thinkers um, and they they think outside the normal scope. And so I think we're always going to come up with weird and wacky ideas and really interesting concepts. And I think it's in their nature to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think I've come up with some weird concepts and we've kind of floated that idea and clients like, it's really cool to see the reaction and yeah, some clients love it and we develop it and then it works out that we can't afford to get this built mm. and that's okay but we've gone on that road and we've kind of mm. developed that idea and so um we just work on other options and other ideas to deliver the right outcome but i think as a designer we'll always investigate those and we'll always develop some interesting concepts because i think it's important for clients to see us um go through that creative process mm. and i think it's important for clients to see that that's the value that we bring it's not about pinning up a bunch of pictures on pinterest and then collaborating them it's it's more than that it's about psychology it's about emotional connection and spiritual connection to the spaces and to what the client is wanting to achieve awesome i think that's a pretty uh, good place to end it actually tonga that's really nicely said and it's something that i feel you're right it sounds like it sounds it sounds an interesting profession certainly and it sounds a challenge and it sounds like there's a real uh balancing point and you have to wear two hats and and i guess from what i see of it is that you have to have quite strong emotional intelligence but also i think if someone's going to approach a designer then you should let the designer design uh as well you know um because if you're if you're wanting to put it in the professional's hands you know i we, we don't get clients coming onto site and telling us which way to cut rafters because we're yeah. building what we do so i think um yeah how do you it's a hard balance isn't it you've you got to let designers design but then also the client has to win at the end of the day hmm. yeah and i think for a client those are some things that they need to look at when they're looking for a designer um if that's what they're after Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are so many great architects in New Zealand who have a very significant style and you can look at a house and know exactly who designed that. And that's awesome. And some people want that. And so, you know, that should be made available to them. Mm. Um, and there's, yeah, this New Zealand is so diverse and there are so many opportunities out there for uh, consumers and creative people just keep creating, eh? So, yeah. yeah that's the cool thing about creative people and designers is that there's always something, there's always a wacky idea that comes out to fruition. There's always a, you know, an interesting concept or an interesting kind of aesthetic that comes out and yeah, we're kind of always evolving and picking our brains and drawing new paintings and exploring new things. Awesome. Yeah. Amen to that. May, long may it continue. And, and thanks for, thanks for being a part of that, uh, Tonga. I appreciate it. And, um, thanks for sharing your story. Um, if people want to get in touch with you and contact you, do you want to, um, just 
uh, tell the listeners where they can do that? Yeah, so um, we're on social media, Nest Interiors um, and Design. So you can follow us, follow us on Instagram, uh, Facebook, on our website. Um, I'm a real people person, so if you hit me up and you just want to catch up, I'm totally down for that. So, um, yeah, yeah, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, um, and we have a website with no gallery at the moment. But that's <laughs> that's that's a typical small business, and you know we're still working on projects that I started working on my first year of business. So it'll take us a while to build a, a gallery of cool images, but slowly but surely yeah awesome great well thanks again tonga this was fun it was a interesting conversation uh, i appreciate you um giving me your time so yeah all the best for your future endeavors and and i hope you get to keep creating and and um doing what you do best awesome thanks for having me no worries all right another episode down thanks for listening friends that was Tonga Robertson, interior designer, owner and creator of Nest Interiors. You can go and see what Nest Interiors are up to at nestinteriors.co.nz. Follow nest underscore interiors underscore nz on Instagram. It was fun to speak to an interior designer. I found that really enlightening, you know, uh, visualizing end goals and being able to create things out of objects and colors and kind of using the rules of construction to come up with visually pleasing aspects of a space or to make a place feel unique to a certain person, that's uh, that's a fair effort, you know, even beyond just picking things out of a catalog uh, to really put someone's own stamp on the space that they inhabit, whether it be their house or an office workspace or a community space. Yeah, as you as you heard from that interview, Tonga wears many hats and I, I found it quite interesting the kind of psychological, personal aspect of what she does and how she kind of, I suppose, teases out from clients their goals and the things they would like to see realised but can't quite communicate them or turn those things into solid objects that will inhabit their spaces so man interesting job hard job uh for sure yeah i kind of um am guilty of like laboring the point of how we design in a way that's authentic to new zealand i'm going to stop bashing people over the head with that one i think it's a question that i have absolutely no idea how to answer myself so that's why I'm punishing other people with it and hoping that they can tell me something that I certainly don't know. So I find it interesting anyway, and I think Tonga gave a pretty fair crack at how she explained her own creative processes and how she's trying to help others achieve, again, results that are authentic to themselves. Pretty rewarding job, I could imagine. So, yeah. If interior designing sounds like a bit of you, then there's places you can study and opportunities out there, perhaps to, again, help people enjoy the space that they inhabit most often. Pretty crazy how much time we spend inside in our own houses and 
take those spaces for granted. And I know from my low budget experience of my own living conditions, if I can even buy a print of a piece of artwork that I like, it can really just change a whole space or change the way I relate to that space anyway. I find that pretty fun. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment which says that perhaps as a rule for life or as a goal you should make one space in your house as beautiful as you possibly can. I think that's a pretty worthy goal. Um, It certainly has a big effect on your life if you can have that kind of nest, that cave, that place you can retreat to that you feel you can be yourself in. So shot to Tonga for helping people realize those spaces for themselves. Uh, Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I really like talking to designers and architects. I think I'm not that way. I don't really have those sort of visualizable skills myself. I'm a carpenter, but I think if someone said, here's a bunch of materials, build whatever you want, I guess I'd struggle at first because it's not something that we really get to do all that often. I'm kind of too focused on the th- the work in front of me to think about what kind of spaces I'm trying to create. So if there's a way to nurture that creative aspect for your own job, you know, and to think about the end product and what the spaces that you're creating will do for other people. I think just that mindset maybe could make your job a bit more rewarding or lend some more meaning to what you're up to every day. Who knows? Just throw on that one out there. Keep chipping away.